This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Two generals, two speeches. Is it time to stop the reservists' experiment? We can't experiment with a key part of our future military during such a very difficult time for the world. Planning for the next defence review, has Putin done the MOD a favour? Who sides with whom when it comes to ISIS and the Gulf states? And what does Armed Forces Day mean for the services in Scotland? Two British generals, one former and one still serving, have both warned against further cuts to defence spending. Former Chief of the Defence Staff Lord Richards and the current Head of the Army General Sir Peter Wall have both made speeches on the current state of Britain's armed forces. Lord Richards used his maiden speech in the House of Lords to make his point. Afterwards, he spoke to BFBS reporter Simon Newton. Well, of course, the headlines sometimes belie what I actually said. I mean, I suppose what I was doing is firing a warning shot that um, further cuts to defence, in my judgment, given the very unstable world we're in, which has been predictable, um, would be dangerous. And I, along with many other people that know a bit about defence and the armed forces, are saying enough is enough. Have you been surprised by the amount of interest in what you said? I have been, actually, because I thought I was making my maiden speech in the House of Lords and no one would be particularly interested. Um, there were only about probably 50 or 60 people in the chamber. But, of course, modern communications and suddenly it's going around most of this country is not further afield. But I'm pleased too, Simon, because so, I, 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 I wanted the message to get out there. I mean, the protocol is that your maiden speech is non-contentious, which... Yours is really, I suppose. Well, I, <laughs> I didn't really intend it to be. Uh, in my t- uh, definition, it's not. Uh, this is a bit of a no-brainer. Um, we're living in a very troubled world, and um, we're sort of ignoring it. Um, what might have been appropriate in 2010 and again in 2011, and I wasn't happy with it then, uh, is certainly, in my judgment, no longer the case. And at the very least, we ought to have a look at what we're doing and check it is OK. You mentioned um, your time as, as Chief of the Defence Staff, um, and also you, should, you talked about reservists yesterday and that issue mm. about the Army gain, getting 30,000 reservists by the end of the decade or so, and you talked about that being a brave experiment. You've obviously got your doubts about that and whether that's actually going to work. Is this something that you raised at the time when you were... CDS, and if and if not, why didn't you? Well, we certainly did raise it. It was discussed widely within the MAD. The um, process of um, analysis that led to it was done out with the normal CDS chain of command. Uh, don't ask me why. <coughs> I my suspicion it was because they knew I wouldn't be very helpful but I may be wrong there was some merit in taking it outside it's not a bad idea in principle Um, the problem with it as has now come out in the NAO report was that the recommendation as I recall uh, said that it should be tested the proposition should be tested and if it was found to be feasible then by all means go ahead that testing process uh, has never happened Um, So we're doing, if you like, why I use the word experiment, we're doing the test as a live run. Um, And I want it to work, believe me. Do you Um, think it's feasible? 
It's feasible if you put money into it and encourage people financially and in terms of uh, conditions of service. For example, um, one of the uh, speakers yesterday, whose name forget I, I've forgotten, said, which I didn't know, that reservists don't get uh, access to travel cards, rail cards. Those little steps like that would be a bit make a big difference. But we can't experiment with a key part of our future military. Um, during such a very difficult time for the world. That's really why I use the word experiment. So did you go to the Defence Secretary and actually say, I have my, my concerns about this? Um, I'm pretty certain that at the Defence Board we all express concerns. And indeed, we all, including for all I remember, um, Liam Fox himself had concerns, but it was considered collectively to be something that was worth pursuing. The decision was taken and the concerns, as I say, many of us expressed were put to one side because it was considered a good thing to do. That was Lord Richards talking to Simon Newton. Meanwhile, the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Peter Wall, made his speech the next day at Rusi's Land Warfare Conference. In it, he said the transformation of Britain's forces was gathering momentum, but the resources at the next defence review would be key. Afterwards, he suggested to BFBS reporter James Hurst that the decision to increase the Army Reserve might not be a permanent solution i think it's an experiment and our marketing is you know driving hard at trying to get their message out to british society to see whether these people were asking to be twice a citizen to be uh, people in a civilian employment as well as members of our reserve and achieve the standards that we aspire to as to whether there are enough people in the country in the current economic climate and in light of their relationships with their employers whether actually they're up for it but we need to remember that in the, when I joined the army, the reserve was about 100,000. So what we're asking for in numerical terms is quite small. And in terms of... And in terms of... it'll work. Um, well, you know, what are we certain of in the modern world? I mean, this is what we're trying to do. We're doing it because, for two reasons. We're doing it because um, we want to make um, the best use we can of the nation's you know, potential military talent within the financial resources we've got. But we're also doing it because we foresee a need to connect ourselves better with society. And with the bulk of the army, when we come back from Germany, being based in UK, um, that's a sensible thing to be doing. You have, what, three months left in the job. Uh, when you took on the role, had you seen where the army would be now, at the end of your time, would you have been happy to see that as an end state? No, I'm frustrated that we've had to uh, downsize the army, that we've had to um, forego some very talented people who had uh, unfulfilled ambitions in the army. This is, after all, a people business. I'm very frustrated about that. But uh, in these jobs, you uh, do what's asked of you in the situation that the country faces. And it's been an extreme situation in terms of economic austerity. And the army has had to take its share of the, of the, of the pain. And we've done that. We're now facing forward. Uh, we're not licking any wounds. We've got uh, competencies and capabilities we're extremely proud of. We've got well-motivated people. I'm not pretending that you know, everyone's morale is perfect because uncertainty isn't something people enjoy. But I'm absolutely clear that the army that I'm leaving behind me for General Carter to take command of is going to offer, you know, people, young officers and young soldiers, all the opportunities and challenges that we enjoyed when we were in their shoes 40 years ago.
I'm confident about that. That was the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Peter Wall, speaking to James Hurst. Well, listening to all of that is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hi, Christopher. What, what do you think of what you heard? Well, I think these are two really great guys, right? OK, let's get that straight. And I think they're talking a lot of humbug here as well. Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> when you get... Hang on, you get, you get from, uh, you know, General Peter, the uh, CGS, um, talking to people, you know, join the TA, they can be twice a citizen... Where did they get this language from? People don't join the TA to become twice a citizen. Mm. They join for all sorts of other reasons. The other thing, um, I think it was an experiment uh, to get the TA up from 15,000 to 30,000. That wasn't the language they were using when they actually produced it. At the it. time? No, they were saying, I'm sure this will work, etc. Et there never, there's never been a plan B offered, has there? And not even now when they're saying it's, a, it's an experiment. No, and also um, you've got you, you know got the former CDS uh, General Richards saying I didn't know there was going to be such a fuss about this. I was in the House of Lords, only a fifty or sixty people sitting there think, thinking about it, and probably most of them asleep. Anyway, he wasn't talking to the House of Lords, even if he was making the speech there. He was talking to a much different sort of audience. They are they nobody now believes, or that's the impression they give from their language. Nobody actually believes that the TA reinforcement of the regular forces, the regular army, is going to work. What they haven't come up with is now what do you do about it? And now what do you do about it? Of course, you, if you want bothered about recruiting, and don't forget, you, you have to recruit when numbers are coming down or being cut just because you always need new trades and new, new sort of training. The idea should be put all their efforts, all the money, stick it into the regular recruiting. If you get the regular recruiting right and then say to the regulars in their local units... Uh, now you go out and sell it to the TA, to people to join the TA. Is that not happening? I mean, you, you'd assume... It doesn't it, happen it, properly, no, because they're doing two different channels. They have these great campaigns to get, as uh, General War says, uh, to get people to come become twice a citizen. You know, this is, this is it sounded very good just before the First World War, that sort of, uh, sort of language, but it sort of senses to an ordinary guy that okay. these, these people are not in the same world as, as the f people on the streets who are looking, perhaps, to join the okay, TA so, for the fun of it. So we, we've got two generals talking about the same kind of thing uh, over two days, back-to-back. Is it a concerted effort? And is there also something about getting the money right for defence coming up to 2020, but also for the Defence Review next year? I don't believe either General Richard or General um, Peter Wall rang each other up and said, Swell me. Cool. I didn't know you were going to make a speech like that. I mean, do you? No, of course not. No, this is, this is the first sign that we can see. But what are they trying to see. achieve? They're trying to achieve. They're trying to get out of the TA uh, or the reserves thing for a start. That's what it sounds like. Whether they are or not, doesn't matter. That's what it sounds like. But the most important thing, they're saying to Whitehall, listen, we cannot hack terrorism. We cannot hack the big strategic operations that you're asking us to do in the future. On the budgets that we've got, we've got to keep to a 2% defence spending and not reduce it, as you plan to do, to 1.7%. Christmas, stay with us. Sit rep with Still to come, ISIS tighten their grip on Iraq, but which country could be next? And what does Armed Forces Day mean for servicemen and women in Scotland? BFBS Sit rep. So, how should the Ministry of Defence be planning ahead of next year's Defence and Security Review? Well, the Commons Defence Committee is looking at that very issue in its current inquiry. Next week, it will hear evidence from the former ambassador to Russia, Sir Andrew Wood, who joins us now. Good to speak to you today. Thanks for your time. I expect they want to hear, take advantage of your expertise on, expertise on Russia. Do you know exactly what you're going to have to talk about? 
well, they haven't given me a precise thing, but I imagine it will be what I think the real trajectory or the trajectory of the, of the crisis is likely to be. Is Putin likely to invade the East? Uh, how do we cope with this new uh, disguised form of warfare? Um, how are the Ukrainians going to react and things like that? And what kind of preparations does someone like yourself do to appear before this committee? Well, I've already talked to uh, the chairman of the committee, uh, so he knows my views in general as to what is happening. I've also been talking to a, a committee of the House of Lords on a similar topic, as well as in, in public uh, fora. So um, I don't think there's any questions that they will want to ask which are likely to surprise me. What I would like to emphasise is that uh, this is a crisis which is a crisis of around whether or not Russia is prepared to allow its neighbours to govern themselves, putting it crudely. Mm. And, and in terms of the MOD, do you think that President Putin's actions in Ukraine will help the MOD fight against further defence cuts? Well, I think it very clearly shows that uh, um, President Putin is not the, uh, the ruler of Russia that a lot of people had hoped he might become. Um, he is someone who's retreating more and more into an anti-Western pose, repression at home, and a state-directed economy. So this has dangers. And it's dangerous to, to, to the neighbourhood, very clearly shown by, uh, by Ukraine, to say nothing of the huge increase in defence expenditure that he's, he's undertaken. How, how much influence do you judge him to have at the moment? Well, he's got a great deal of influence in Russia. I think he's actually on rather a losing wicket in what he's uh, uh, done in Crimea. That's going to cost an enormous amount to Russia. The uh, introduction of weapons and armed personnel into East Ukraine hasn't, as he supposed it might, produced a, a wave of feeling for Russia. It's a, produced a wave of feeling against Russia. And most of Ukrainians are now feel very strongly that Russia is a threat to them. Christopher, That's going to be a disaster. Christopher, I'd just like you to imagine for a moment that you're the chair of this defence select committee. What, what would you be asking of Sir Andrew Wood? Um, well, the first thing I'd, I'd say... And the most obvious uh, is, is what Putin has done um, to Ukraine. <clears throat> does that help the MOD um, to, to, to make their case of, of the uncertainties and therefore stick to at least 2%? But there's another thing which I think they'd want to know, and that is that is it, could it be that in Moscow, in, let's say, the nomenclatura, is it, could it be that there is a sort of right wing in Moscow... I don't say UKIP, but there's a right wing in Moscow that would like mm. to split from the West, whereas another lot, the so liberals... So within the Moscow hierarchy? Yeah, in the lo Moscow hierarchy, there's, there's a lot of people who don't want, to, don't want to get too far away from Europe, and where Putin's interests appear on his character appears to be with that right wing, he's also having to recognise that the future is Europe, and Russia feels part of Europe. It's Andrew. Yes, but um, it feels part of Europe, but it also feels with not good reason anyway but it feels betrayed it feels it's been rejected and so there is a a, a strong emotional element in what's going on in in moscow i think it's a disaster for russia uh, but it's not necessarily the same thing as being a disaster for the ruling group in russia who feel that their rule has been buttressed by the uh, anti-western propaganda uh, the stream of lies about what's really happening um and the marked rise in the present popularity of Putin which which has gone with that. 
So, Andrew, what, what do you think the next step should be in dealing with the pro-Russian militia in Ukraine? Well, the next step should be to uh, stop the reinforcements in, in quite advanced weaponry that's coming across from uh, Russia, to stop the stream of, quote, volunteers, unquote, some of whom are paid and recruited effectively by the authorities. Um, and uh, ideally, there should be a cessation of the mendacious propaganda that is being put out by Russia uh, towards the east. But as I said, their failure to uh, provoke a genuine uprising against the authorities in Kiev is quite marked, and their uh, success in another way in making a huge majority of Ukrainians increasingly suspicious of, of Russia is, uh, that's an enormous failure. Mm. Christopher, uh, this week NATO foreign ministers have met in Brussels to talk about Russia's actions in Ukraine as well as the situation in Iraq. Was much achieved? I think what was achieved is, 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 is the emphasis that NATO, um, EU ministers, and don't forget quite often uh, when foreign ministers go to Brussels, they can be going to either because a lot of a lot of uh, countries are, are members of both organisations, both alliances, but they're not backing off. They're not taking the you know not taking the foot off the pedal on 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 this one. And also, there's a, there, there was some discussion in in the margins. They say, well, you know, Putin now understands that he really couldn't do anything about Ukraine on, on the bigger scale. Mm. Uh, and and that's very important for for them to understand. But they are. The pressure remains, and that pressure has an effect not simply economically in the region, but reassures a lot of other countries in the region as, as, as well as the, uh, the, the economic consequences of it. Christopher, stay with us. Uh, so, Andrew, thank you for your time. What day can we see you um, appearing before this committee? I don't know if it's in public. I really don't know. But I will be there on Tuesday. OK, and, and if it's televised... Tuesday, sorry, the, that is the 1st of July. OK, and, and if it's on telly, I'm sure we'll be having it on uh, Forces TV, our TV channel. Thank you for your time today. Afghan security forces are fighting hundreds of Taliban militants after they launched assaults on military checkpoints across northern Helmand. It could be the biggest test yet for the Afghan National Army. They are running the counter-Taliban operation without ISAF support. Former Lieutenant General Carl Eikenbury was U.S. Ambassador to Kabul. He told BFPS Toby Sadler lessons needed to be learned from the Iraq withdrawal. Politically... How will the new president of Afghanistan operate? And you're absolutely correct to look to Iraq and to Maliki as examples of what not to do. Number one, the new president of Afghanistan needs to be politically inclusive. He needs to pull in all of the ethnic groups. I'm confident, knowing both of those men, that they would do that. The second lesson learned from Maliki is that the new president of Afghanistan should move forward quickly to sign the bilateral security agreement with the United States, which then sets the precedent for an agreement with all of the NATO ISAF partners that will permit those foreign countries that want to continue to provide military assistance to Afghanistan uh, have a legal basis for their troops to be stationed uh, in, that, in the country. And I believe that if you have a politically inclusive president and if you have a president that reaches agreement with the international community to allow for an appropriate level of military assistance to be provided to the country, those would set the conditions for future success. 
Should Britain and America learn the lessons of Iraq? Should we do more to bolster Afghanistan and stay a bit longer? Well, I think, Toby, this is the lesson for the United States and for the UK from Iraq. We talked about lessons that the Afghan leaders should draw from Iraq. I think the lessons that we should draw from Iraq is that it's at great risk if you have a precipitous withdrawal of your US, of the international military missions, not so much in providing frontline security, but the mission of continuing to advise and mentor and train. Because one of the roles that the international community played in Iraq and we're playing in Afghanistan, that is the international military forces, is that we provide a degree of transparency for those security forces to the different power brokers around the country who, remembering these are security forces which were only established several years ago, have not yet gained the trust of a group of political actors who are suspicious of one another. And if they lose confidence that those security forces are apolitical, but indeed might be turned against them, then things will begin to break down. And I think that's part of what we're seeing in Iraq right now. That was the former U.S. ambassador to Kabul, Carl Eikenberry. And let's uh, stay with that thought on Iraq, Christopher. The foreign secretary has arrived in Baghdad for talks with the Iraqi, with Iraqi leaders. John Kerry's just been there. U.S. military advisers have arrived. Um, that's what Britain and the U.S. are doing. But what about the other Gulf states? Look at where Iraq is and then whip around the countries that are sort of tagged onto them. Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, Kuwait... Syria, Iran, Saudi Arabia, they've all got interest on what's going on there and what's going on with ISIS. Syria, um, the border's disappeared. So the war in northern Syria is now part of the war in Iraq. That's particularly important. And by that, by that you mean Islamist extremists are working across the borders? That's it, no border. Free-flowing. No border, free-flow stuff. In Iran, which is the main Shia power in the region, uh, and they're so, they're so concerned about this uh, that the Qasim Soleimani who is the head of what we would call the special forces uh, in, in Iran, has been sent to Baghdad, and he's trying to get together, interestingly, with the, Russian, with, with the American special forces. You know, who would have imagined that? Because they could see the whole thing spreading into Iran uh, to challenge Iran, because uh, Iran, don't forget, Shia, these people, ISIS, Sunni, so it's a, it's a battle between them. Jordan, um, the ISIS have border control at Trey Bill. Mm. And that's particularly important because it's the only way that they can get across. Um, Jordan army is very, very good. Mm. Extremely good. They can probably contain it. Could be an area where you get British help in that. Uh, the Saudis, well, Maliki says uh, the, the Saudi uh, royal family is funding ISIS. It's not true, but a lot of uh, individuals could be. So they could think they're going to be the next attack. Um, individual uh, people in Kuwait, they're funding the Islamists. That could be a problem because they could extend their battle legitimately, they would say, in, in, in into Kuwait. Oil, don't forget oil. And Turkey, you see, uh, Turkey could actually turn around and say, listen, to contain this, we are going to officially support the Kurdish province. The Kurdish province, and the Turks don't like Kurds, mm. Kurdish province in Iraq. And that would change the face of that war completely. That's, it's a, it is a 
total regional problem now. <laughs> Haven't got time to sort this one out today, Chris, but there's more, more, more talk on this, I'm sure, in the future. Thanks for that. This is BFBS. The man leading the Royal Navy's part in Armed Forces Day is Captain Chris Smith, Naval Regional Commander of Scotland and Northern Ireland, and he joins us now. Good to speak to you today. Um, just tell us how big the Navy is in Scotland. Well, good afternoon, and delighted to uh, to join you too. Um, the naval footprint in Scotland today is somewhere just over 4,500 people. Uh, it's a mix of uh, the naval service uh, in, in the form of ro the Royal Navy, predominantly based in Fas Lane, where, of course, we're slowly moving our submarine fleet. We've also got two big Royal Marine Unit, 4-3 Commando in Faz Lane and 4-5 Commando up in Arbroath uh, on the northeast coast, uh, as well as a, wide, a, a, a spread of the University Royal Naval Units and, of course, recruiters, uh, and, uh, and then our reservists as well. Mm. Um, so that's, that's the footprint today, and we're, we're steadily growing that, actually, uh, over the next six or seven years, uh, particularly as, as a result of moving the submarines um, from Devonport towards Faz Lane. Of course, uh, the big day is uh, Armed Forces Day on Saturday. Historically, the Navy in Scotland was on the maritime front line during the Cold War. How will you go about impressing people this weekend? Well, uh, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Stirling's absolutely landlocked. We look long at hard at what we might be able to uh, bring even upstream, never mind by, uh, by trailer. Mm. But, uh, nevertheless, we can guarantee uh, a really exciting day out. Um, so uh, what will you be doing then? Uh, well, we've got, uh, we've got uh, the Royal Marine Band uh, who will be leading the, the march past and taking a key role in the drumhead service. And then we've got uh, the search and rescue helicopter from Gannett coming. We've got a link static. Uh, uh, helicopter uh, with us on on, you know, on the ground for people to ha have a look around, and, uh, and we've also got um, the Royal Marine Commando Challenge for those that want to uh, come and try it uh, to get a little bit of taste of being a Royal Marine in the in the naval village, and then uh, something called the Fit for Life display, which is where we, one of our chefs just shows how how easy it is to eat healthily, uh, cook healthily, cook sensibly, and uh, and hopefully a bit of education going on there as well. Uh, I've got the Northern Diving Group, who are based in Faz Lane. They're coming across with a big uh, tank uh, <laughs> of water, and they'll allow uh, you know a bit of demonstration of some of their equipment there, along with uh, their IED capabilities. So, a wide raft of uh, a wide raft of activity, uh, both put on by the regulars uh, and by uh, by the reserves. Do you get much of an idea of how, how good this is uh, in terms of recruitment of potential new people to the Royal Navy? Well. Uh, Armed Forces Day specifically, you know, is not a direct recruiting event. And it's really important, I think, that, you know, we don't see it as that, the public don't perceive it as that. However, of course, you know, we recognise that many of the young, perhaps, who come along might be doing so because they've got an interest in, in services. And, and, of course, we'll always be delighted to talk to them, tell them a little bit more about it. And, uh, you know, I well remember going to Devonport Navy Days as a mm. seven or eight-year-old, and perhaps that's what set me on the train. Uh, you know, that I'm still on uh, a number of years later. Now, I know you won't want to talk about the politics, but this is all happening in the shadow of the independence vote. Do you have to provide a lot of details to the government about any implications of the voting on the Royal Navy? Have you had to do a lot of homework? No, I, I, I mean, as many of the, the listeners will be aware, that the Ministry of Defence line throughout has been that, you know, we are doing no planning for uh, a, a, you know, a separatist Scotland in, in the future. Um, that remains the case until we know the outcome of, of the vote. Um, mm. We're just delighted to have this opportunity to uh, showcase uh, the Royal Navy in Scotland, much of which, you know, we're, we're putting on the ground on, on, on Saturday is actually based up here. You know, we haven't been pulling in lots of assets from down south. 
And so perhaps it does give people a sense of the, the scale of, of what the Royal Navy is about up here. And as you said at the outset, it is difficult for us to bring in a mm. submarine and some of our other assets. So, you know, all of that is going on as well. And of course, there'll be people there who will be delighted to talk about it. All right. We've also got some colleagues from BAE Systems here, and they're going to have a number of their absolute fantastic models, and particularly Type mm. 6, which is oh. the generation of all right. a frigate. Captain Chris Smith, thank you very much for your time. We'll, we'll leave it there and let you get on with your planning. Um, Christopher, um, an important uh, date in history around this time as well, which you wanted to uh, allude to the irony of. I tell you what, there are two important dates. That, and one, that Captain Smith didn't talk about. Next week also, the Queen's shifting up to Scotland and she's launching the Queen Elizabeth. This, uh-huh. The, the, the yes. biggest the biggest ship the British have ever built, the, mm. the Royal Navy's ever had. The and I can't believe carrier. I can't believe the Royal Navy is so ill prepared that he's not he's not making plans. No, the biggest thing of course is the irony that at Stirling, where Armed Forces Day take place, was seven hundred years ago was the Battle of Bannockburn. Mm. Where it, it was the biggest battle in what was it? It was the Scottish Wars of Independence. <laughs> and that's when it took place and uh, and, and the the Scots won. Mm. Let, let's, let's, let's stay on the conflict side of things for a moment because there's been a, very briefly a duel uh, proposed by the former former fair, first sea lord, if I can get it out, with the education secretary. What's that all about? Well, it it, it, it really was the education secretary making a silly remark, and then Alan West, uh, who who was first sea lord and was Labour. Don't forget, he was a Labour minister after doing the the, the uniform job, and he says, "Well, he said I'm willing to challenge him." In here, in the po- in in the laws, or outside in the ring, Castlereagh, I think, was the last minister ever to fight a duel, and mm. that was in the 18th century. So he's got to catch up a you, bit. You ever challenged anyone to a duel? I have actually. Have you? Yeah. Who? I'm not telling you, but I, I have. <laughs> I have. And I'll tell you something else. For the first time in my life, I won. Ah, well done, Christopher. And there we must leave it. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Goodbye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.